3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You are on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM with me, Priya, and Inez is in the studio too. Good morning, Inez. Good morning. Ah, look at us go. We are, we're kicking goals. That's a goal, and we've thrown the footy right through the goal, and we've scored a goal. That's sports. And that's on sports. <laughs> Although, oh my gosh, preseason matches this week. The Roos beat the Pies. What's going on? Um, I'm so excited for footy to be back. Ah, uh, that's right. Uh, some of us have no life and no hobbies, and so we turn to the football. No, I was actually going to ask you, like, what do you really enjoy about, yeah, going to a sporting match or the community of it? Um, I guess I really enjoy the excitement of seeing a bunch of people just be at the absolute top of their game doing really cool stuff and then just the excitement that you get from being like, whoa, those are my boys. Those are my boys? Um, That's, I mean, I can... I guess I can say that because my team's been performing generally pretty well. But then when they perform badly, I feel like it's my fault personally. Personally. Poisonally. Poisonally. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, let us jump into the rundown for today. Do you want to kick us off? Yes. Uh, so first up, we'll hear Andy and Cam from Yena Pasaran on 3CR speak with Portland correspondent and investigative reporter Dr. Jason Wilson about the think tank – Claremont Institute and Eugenics. This segment is from Yena Pasaran's 8th of February 2024 show. And remember, you can catch Yena Pasaran on Thursdays on 3CR. And then we have Anna Amina, who is an educator, curator and writer based in Nam. Her practice centers collaboration and creating accessible opportunities for people of colour to connect with contemporary art in so-called Australia. And is here to chat about the latest instalment of the Palestinian archive, The Great Book Return, that ran from the 20th of Jan to the 10th of Feb in Brunswick, and Volume 2 actually expanded to include materials from First Nations, Lebanese, Syrian, and Jordanian people, and highlights the importance of archiving as resistance. Amazing. Um, after that, we are joined by, I guess, uh, he's become our West Papua correspondent. Uh, West Papuan diplomat, activist, and lecturer at the Australian National University, Ronnie Karani, joins us to discuss the outcome of Indonesia's recent elections with former Defence Minister Prabowo Subianto declaring victory last Wednesday. And Prabowo's election has raised significant concern among rights advocates who have pointed to allegations of serious human rights abuses overseen by the incoming president in both East Timor and Papua, as well as the potential for Prabowo's presidency to function as a conduit for incumbent president Joko Widodo to continue exerting political influence once he exits office. Uh, This is something that I am really hoping uh, will give listeners a bit of pause and uh, a reminder to to engage with the the campaign and the movement to free West Papua and for Papua, uh, West Papuan self determination, um, because uh, as as so many people raise, you know, outside of First Nations peoples here, uh, 
uh, West Papuans are our closest neighbors engaged in this struggle for sovereignty and self-determination. Um, and finally, we are going to be joined by community lawyer and scholar Dr. Tamar Hopkins to talk about training criminal defense lawyers to identify and respond to racial profiling and other forms of police misconduct in Victoria. And Tamar has been working, researching and writing on police power since 2005 and will be running the well-regarded Stop, Question and Search Racial Profiling Training for Defense Lawyers in Victoria training again on Tuesday, the 12th of March. So we'll be talking a little bit about that and have all of the information in our show notes for anybody who is uh, working in the area of criminal defense, whether you're a lawyer, you're a barrister, um, to actually get more of a grasp of how to identify and then um, seek accountability and justice for clients who are bringing concerns in relation to racial racial profiling, sorry, in uh, so-called Australia. Um, let us head to a community service announcement and we will be back with you with the headlines. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a Food Not Bombs flyer on the road and I had like this fist with a carrot and carrots are my favorite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. These are the news headlines for Thursday the 22nd of February. February has seen Western Australia experience extreme temperatures so far this month. WA has recorded at least seven days over 40 degrees Celsius. A high of 49 degrees Celsius was recorded at Carnivoran Airport over the weekend, marking it the hottest day globally for 2024. Ongoing heatwaves pose serious risks for the health of humans, wildlife and environmental alike. The Australian Conservation Foundation says evidence shows that extreme heat can cause mass mortality in birds, bats, kangaroos, rodents and koalas. Sweltering City's executive director, Emma Bacon, says, quote, Beyond what's reported in the news, we know that it means people in the community are suffering and that people will more likely die due to the effects of the heat. The people who are most at risk will include older people, people with a disability, young babies and people who live in hot homes or work outside. Concerns have been raised about the lack of air conditioning in prisons across the state. Despite committing funding towards installation of aircon in Roborn Regional Prison last year, the plan is yet to be actioned. In a statement released earlier this month, the Aboriginal Legal Service of WA stressed that extreme heat inside prisons could prove fatal. CEO Wayne Nunnup states, quote, WA cannot continue to wait and watch as inmates stay locked up in unacceptable, inhumane and life-threatening conditions, end quote. The heat wave has compounded the already egregious conditions inside Casarina Prison's Unit 18. The youth detention wing is known for its excessive lockdowns, confining children to their cells for up to 20 hours per day without access to air conditioning. 
First Nations children account for 63% of people in youth detention nationwide. Also in the news headlines, data released on Tuesday by the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare shows an increase in the number of First Nations children removed from their parents' care. Between 2018 and 2022, the number of First Nations children in out-of-home care has risen by approximately 12% from 17,200 to 19,400. In the 2021-2022 reporting period, 4,500 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children were removed. Children under one-year-old had the highest rate of removal at 41 per 1,000 children. According to the Secretariat of National Aboriginal and Islander Child Care, or SNAKE, these trends are setting to fail the now-condemned Closing the Gap targets. The report comes as this week two First Nations children in out-of-home care are flying home after being trapped in the UK child protection system for two months without passports or visas. The siblings were removed from their Wiradjuri mother in 2010 and fostered by a British couple in 2017. The foster carers have not applied for further orders to keep the children nor offered to accompany them home. Arnda Lurcha woman and Snake Chief Executive Catherine Little condemned the government's response to the incident, stating, quote, The facts there in the UK is the first place in the first place is yet another demonstration of how child protection systems are failing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and their families. Aboriginal children should be in their country with their family and community, maintaining their connection to culture, end quote. In related news, Brad Banducci announced that he is stepping down as CEO of Woolworths after walking out of an interview on ABC's Four Corners program earlier this week. Under Banducci's leadership, Woolworths has managed to post record profits during a widespread cost-of-living crisis, raising concerns about price gouging by the supermarket giant. Despite a recent loss of $781 million chalked up to overseas operations in New Zealand and a reduced stake in the parent company that owns Beer, Wine and Spirits and Dan Murphy's, Woolworths reported a $929 million net profit after tax for the first six months, oh, sorry, for the six months to December 31, 2023. During the Four Corners interview, ABC journalist Angus Grigg pressed Banducci on a severe lack of competition in Australia's supermarket sector. This led to a tense exchange that culminated in Banducci, who raked in a salary of $8.5 million last year, leaving the interview. While he later returned to finish taping, Banducci's confusing co- comments about the diversity of the sector prompted widespread public discussion and further scrutiny over the Woolworths Coles duopoly. Woolworths is set to appear at a hearing held by the Senate Select Committee into a cost of living crisis next month to face accusations of both price gouging and unfair supplier practices. Amanda Bardwell is poised to replace Banducci as Woolworths CEO on his departure. And finally, in headlines, Free Palestine supporters from across Nam established a community picket of Victorian International Container Terminal workers last night in solidarity with Rafa in the occupied Gaza Strip. Rafa borders Egypt and was deemed a so-called safe zone by the Zionist entity Israel, which is currently under aggressive bombardment. The action last night successfully halted the cranes that operate on Israeli shipping companies in for over four hours at Webdock Drive in Port Melbourne. With action for Rafa saying, quote, While Israel blocks food from entering Gaza, we will block its national cargo carrier Zim from loading and unloading. End quote. The picket successfully blocked workers from entering their shift to load and unload Israeli cargo for over four hours and defeated a police kettle. 
At 11.10pm last night, more police and riot cops arrived, outnumbered the picket, where it was decided to tactfully retreat to avoid further mass arrests and further police brutality. Police violence at the picket last night involved a forcible attempt at removing safety goggles to deploy pepper spray into someone's eyes, excessive use of pepper spray, the use of batons to injure people, police dog squad called in, and a refusal to allow retrieval of an injured person by car for over 90 minutes. This is a concerning escalation of police violence following the policing of the WebDoc picket a few weeks ago from the 19th to the 22nd of January, which involved over seven areas of concern observed by Melbourne Activist Legal, including removal for person from their wheelchair, excessive surveillance, unlawful use of OC spray and mistreatment of medics. The Port of Melbourne must divest from Zim in accordance with the BDS movement's demands. And just to add on to that, uh, Melbourne activist legal support uh, usually puts a call out after these actions for people to send through any footage they have of concerning police behavior. So you can uh, keep an eye out for any calls out by heading to their Instagram at at Melb Activist Legal or by heading to their website, which is mals.au. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 22nd of February. You're listening to 3CR on 855 AM. is Radical Radio. Through our on-air content and community structure, we promote real change for workers' rights, gender equality, environmental action, disability justice, and on racism and First Nations sovereignty. Do you want to be part of real radical change? We need you to subscribe. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation, and $300 solidarity. Call 03-9419-8377. That's 9419-8377. Or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Well, you know what they say, folks, never ask a cishet woman her age, a cishet man his salary or a white South African why they moved to Australia in the late 80s to early 90s. That's right. He brad on my banduji till I quit. Inez, would you like to take us into the next segment? Of course. I was just, you know, um, relishing in the comedic genius that is Priya every time we get to have a show together. Um, but next up on our beautiful, lovely show <laughs> is Andy and Cam of Yena Pasaran on 3CR, who spoke to Portland correspondent and investigative reporter Dr. Jason Wilson about so-called think tank Claremont Institute and eugenics. This segment is from Yena Pasaran's 8th of February show this year. And remember, you can catch Yena Pasaran on Thursdays on 3CR from 4.30 to 5 p.m. We are joined from Portland, Oregon by Antifa-affiliated journalist Jason Wilson. (laughs) Jason, you have been exploring the Claremont Extended Universe. Could you tell us what is that and why have you, with the skull of a rapscallion, been causing so much trouble for it? Well, so I guess the Claremont Institute, for for those of you listeners who don't know, is a... um, a think tank, a quasi-academic institution. It's it's been 
somewhat attached to Claremont College, which is a private university in, or there's overlap anyway. I, I'm not suggesting that they're, they're organizationally linked, but there's there's overlap in personnel. So academics from Claremont College have been involved in, in the Claremont Institute. Until the Trump years, it was fairly confined to the pursuit of a particular intellectual project in conservatism, I guess is the best way to put it, which which proceeded from the work of a, a guy called Harry Jaffa, who was a Claremont College academic, and he was a, a scholar of Abraham Lincoln. He wrote books about Lincoln and had this somewhat idiosyncratic conservative reading of, of Lincoln. And he was an admirer of Lincoln. Not all conservatives are. But anyhow, during the Trump years, he's he's no longer with us. During the Trump years, Claremont became a much harder-edged, more politically involved, and more enthusiastic about providing what you might call intellectual firepower or an intellectual basis for right-wing populism, Trumpism. So, I mean, the the the, the starter's gun there at least as far as the public was concerned, is there's a guy there called Michael Anton who wrote uh, an essay called uh, The Flight 93 Election, where the analogy he was drawing was that uh, Trump may not be that good, but we need to take drastic action because... And the analogy is with the TWA flight that passengers took over and crashed because it was heading for... Where was it heading for? The White House, I guess. So, And from there, they've become more and more at the centre, really, of right-wing populism, and really important in legitimizing certain kinds of ideas, narratives, individuals that go along with that. And so during the Trump years, that arguably culminated in a a person who was a Trump lawyer, uh, a person who was providing legal arguments, in fact, for the purposes of contesting the election result, was John Eastman, who is a, a senior fellow at Claremont, is involved in putting out their uh, magazine, the Claremont Review of Books, and, and is himself a lawyer and was a law, law academic. He actually spoke to the January 6th rally while it was still outside Congress before it proceeded inside, but he was very much a, a firebrand and, and making these specious legal arguments that, that maybe could keep Trump in office. And he's now been indicted along with Trump in Georgia. And I think he's named in other prosecutions related to January 6th as well. And and since Trump has fallen, the, the biggest donor and the board chairman at the Claremont Institute is a guy called Thomas Klingenstein, who I've written about in the past. And he's appears to be in some ways sailing the ship now. And he's he made a series of videos in 2021 about how America was at war and we need to fight the white communists and take the country back from them. And he also started donating lots of money to Republican political candidates, whereas he hadn't much before. And and what they do is they run a series of fellowships, which effectively are a, a forum for, they're not residential fellowships. The fellows will turn up for a weekend or a week or whatever. So they issue Lincoln fellowships, Publius fellowships to, to conservative activists, I guess, in various phases of their career. They do one for sheriffs as well. And they'll get all those folks together and it's an opportunity for them to, to network. And, and a lot of those folks go on to pursue projects either in, in coalition with the Claremont Institute or with other people who've had fellowships or their endeavors will perhaps become more marked with the ideas that Claremont likes to push. Now, 
Some of those fellows have included people like Blake Masters, who your listeners might have heard of. Jack Posobiec has had a fellowship there. And one fellow who I've written a lot about recently is Christopher Rufo, who is someone who has campaigned against, successively against what, what he calls and understands as critical race theory. He's campaigned against sort of various measures that various states have taken to support or include transgender people. He has, and, and he was loomed large in the pursuit of Harvard President Claudine Gay over her alleged softness before a, a, a congressional hearing about anti-Semitism on, on, on Harvard's campus. And, and then he pursued these plagiarism allegations against her. So a lot of the work I've done this year has really been, I guess, in this extended network of Claremont activists, people who've been fellows there, people who've built relationships there and who are pursuing, I guess what you would call, if you wanted, wanted to, me to give the themes of this, these lines of thought that I've been talking, that Claremont have been spreading, I guess it would be they're advocates of right-wing populism, they're, they're supporters, they're, they're, I think, opposed to what they would see as a conservative establishment as much as they are to, to, to liberals and leftists. And they're very open to kind of authoritarian resolutions of what they see as the emergency in America. America's descent in their minds into a social justice tyranny or woke communism, as, as Klingenstein puts it. So they see all of, all of this in very dark terms. They see America as it is in very, very dark terms. And they see it as an emergency or whatever, a state of exception where uh, we might have to just have an authoritarian leader in place for however long just for, it takes. Just for a minute. Yeah. Well, I don't know if they even put an endpoint on it, but like the whole idea of, I wrote a piece a few months back there, which was a news feature, I guess, about about how a lot of folks in that, actually I wrote too, a lot of folks in that network have been talking about how they need a red Caesar. And red in this case is not communist. It means the, the Republican Party is, is, is red in the US context. And, and they've also, I wrote something about how a lot of them have expressed admiration for Franco, Spanish dictator Franco. So there, there's a real openness to authoritarianism. And I think there's a lot of good evidence that while their direct influence is, is hard to calculate precisely or quantify, there's a lot of evidence that they are, there's a lot of evidence that those kinds of ideas are, are percolating more widely in, in, in conservative politics and in the Republican Party. And there's a concern, I guess, that if, if, say, Trump is elected in November and some emergency public order, that folks like that will have the arguments ready for him to make in order to whatever suspend parts of the constitution that's that's what sources i that's i worry that sources i've talked to have expressed it anyway in in regard to this talk about caesarism and stuff so so yeah i mean i i'd say that for most of this year really oh well this year's just started for most of the last six or seven months i've just really been looking at this broad Claremont connected network and, and what people are up to. And the interesting thing from my perspective is uh, that you don't have to dig too far. They, they tend to say things out loud and, and things tend to be quite on the surface. So, yeah. Jason, you've made reference to critical race theory mm -hmm. as uh, being one target of this or yep. satellite in this 
<clears throat> extended universe. What's the understanding of critical race theory and race in this universe? And how does it relate to science? So <laughs> I, I would say that critical race theory, these folks use critical race theory. I mean, critical race theory is a scholarly tradition or a, a school of, of, of research, specifically in legal studies, where I guess it embodies a criticism by black scholars and others who have been persuaded by their arguments of the embedded assumptions in American law and the judiciary and the way, way in which law runs that are, I guess, white supremacist. That's the argument. I mean, Chris Rufo and, and others who, who use that term in the last couple of years were really not taking issue with that specific school of thought or, or that specific tradition of scholarship, they were more using it as an umbrella term for anything, especially in school curriculums, but also in colleges that either at the level of curriculum acknowledged the, the history of, of, of slavery and, and, and white supremacy that, that really has been one of the, the, the major themes of American history. They either acknowledge that but it could also encompass, I guess, discussions of contemporary American racism in, in classrooms, measures of inclusiveness on the basis of race in, in schools or other educational institutions. So, so they blew up this term to, to make it encompass anything that acknowledged or in some small way tried to remedy the history of white supremacy in the United States. So that's, that's how it was wielded as a, a, a political weapon, I guess. And like Rufo has had a pretty charmed run in a lot of national media, including outlets that you might ordinarily think of as liberal. I mean, his first big media splash was a profile in the New York Times, which credited him with mounting this critical race theory campaign. And, and he's been given a lot of credit for events that he's taken an interest in. And, and again, I think it was Politico after Claudine Gay was fired that sort of credited Rufo with having orchestrated that. So he's been credited or depicted as someone who has a fair amount of political acumen and who was able to conduct these culture war campaigns in a, in a skillful way that, that advantages Republicans. So that was critical race theory. And then he, he also got involved in the transgender stuff. He, he became an advisor and a close ally of Ron DeSantis, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who recently dropped out of the presidential race. He's, he ended his presidential campaign. And DeSantis had this thing called the like Stop Woke Act, which stands for they like to they like to give laws acronym, snappy acronym, acronymic titles here. So that actually stands for Stop Wrongs to Our Kids and Employees Act. Uh, and so that that it regulates the content of curriculum content as well as training in workplaces. And it, it, it prevents in either in training or in curriculums saying that, for example, any white person now shares responsibility for, for the history of slavery, for example. Now, that's a tendentious reading, possibly, of what was actually going on in those trainings or, or, or in those classrooms, that, that like individual white kids or white employees were being singled out by trainers or by, by teachers as responsible for slavery. What might have happened is that 
in the case of classrooms, I imagine that discussion might go to the idea that that contemporary white Americans continue to benefit from the wealth that was extracted during the period of slavery or from there, there's still white privilege, that kind of thing might have come up. Is that is that slating individuals with, with responsibility for that history? I'm not exactly sure. But the, the practical effect was to tear the heart out of a lot of a lot of training, which was really aimed at supporting diversity in workplaces and making them more inclusive and curricula, like, like lessons, teaching, pedagogy that, yeah, just acknowledged that history and, and, and talked about how that history might have, have continuing effects in the present. And you just heard Andy and Cam of Yena Pasaran on 3CR speak with Portland correspondent and investigative reporter Dr. Jason Wilson about so-called think tank, Claremont Institute and eugenics. This segment is from Yena Pasaran's 8th of February show this year. And remember, you can catch Yena Pasaran on Thursdays on 3CR from 4.30 to 5pm. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza, who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege, are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. The law is part of our everyday lives, including when we buy something, use a service, have a job or rent a house. The law can be used to help protect and support families when there is violence in the home or disputes over parenting arrangements. Sometimes we might need to understand the law to navigate specific government systems like Centrelink, getting a residency visa, or if we come into contact with the police. Community legal centres provide free, quality legal advice and assistance to help people with everyday legal problems. We focus on working with people who are experiencing disadvantage such as financial hardship, family violence, homelessness and discrimination. Community legal centres are independent, non-government organisations and can be found across Victoria and Australia. If you're experiencing a legal problem, your local community legal centre may be able to help. To find a community legal centre near you, visit the Federation of Community Legal Centres Victoria at www.fclc.org.au. A 3CR supporter. We know you love listening to 3CR, but we also know that many of you haven't downloaded the Community Radio Plus app yet. The app lets you tune in anywhere and share the station with your friends. So, show the love and share the love and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps.
You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is currently 7.32 and we will be joined by Anna Amina, who is an educator, curator and writer based in Nam. Her practice centers collaboration and creating accessible opportunities for people of color to connect with contemporary art. And is here to chat about the latest installment of the Palestinian Archive, The Great Book Return, and chat about how archiving is resistance. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Anna. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really appreciate you making the time. It's such a amazing and meaningful project. So I was wondering if you could start us off with how The Great Book Return was born and how maybe Volume 2 came about. Um. Basically, I am a book obsessed person. I love books. I've always been like, if you know me, you've received a book by me or will <laughs> eventually receive a book by me. Um, so, um, and I'm and I'm like pretty loud about it. So, um, Mary Beck Council was doing this archiving residency at the old. Um, I think it's like the old school, uh, the old, ch- I, I, it's like a building, why am I freezing on the name? No, that's okay. Take your time. It's, it was very like, Beck Council and it was a, a gift of a residency. And what did you do with that space? So um, basically they approached me to do a, a sort of archival library and it's like this really cute small building and and at the time, like, when I was approached, I was sort of like, I literally cannot do anything except Palestine. Yep. Um, and I was really, when I when I said that, because there's been a lot of pushback about talking about Palestine in, like, uh, more institutional places. Yep. Or, um, so I wasn't, I was sort of ready for, to not be approved, but um, Anna Held, who uh, sort of, helped run the program was like okay let's do this and so that's literally how it was born yeah it's it sounds like a really collaborative and um, yeah a meaningful project to you and I know that you know with volume two it kind of expanded to include um you know materials from first nations lebanese syrian and jordanian people and particularly like highlighting yeah the importance of archiving as resistance amongst you know, stolen and destroyed books and artworks and artifacts. So, yeah, why was it important for you to, yeah, it, maybe, yeah, bring in other um, neighbouring cultures, also Indigenous cultures? So, um, with the first one, it was strictly Palestinian. Um, I really tried to, like, ask members in the community and just uh, bring in uh, uh, whatever, like, artifacts, books they had. And I realized that, like, nothing lives in isolation. Yeah. And that it, it's obviously really important to focus on um, Palestine as the core of the archive. But also, I, I'm i Lebanese, I need to preface this. But from the way that, uh, like, how educated Palestinians are, their literacy level, the way they engage with culture, the way they are... Um, uh, sort of like build their own libraries Mm -hmm. I was like there was no way that they would just stick to their own stuff and that they're constantly in dialogue with their neighbours and with um, First Nations people like there's a long history of solidarity between the two so it's like how do we 
keep the core of uh, Palestine, um, but also expand it so that it it sort of represents um, what essentially what we're looking for, which is uh, free freedom for everyone, sort yeah. of thing. Yeah, 100%. And I think that really nicely follows into my next point is, I yeah, I think in one of your Instagram captions for The Great Book Return, you said there is no community and no learning without shared resources. So I was wondering, you know, when you've been at the space, like inviting people in and people coming through, you know, what role has the space built in like building community and preserving culture, but also learning from each other? So I feel like there's two parts. Well, there's more, but like <laughs> there's always more. Two parts. You know, like two parts to this. One is that, like, generally speaking, archives are not the easiest to access, even if they're open to the public. A lot of people don't know how to access them, uh, what they can and can't do. So uh, archives are sort of uh, in the background, and like it's one of those if you know, you know situations. Mm. So I feel like bringing the archive into the public and allowing people to be able to like touch the books actually contribute to the archive. So it's not even like sort of the gatekeeping because I'm still the gatekeeper, but it's sort of like um, I have to acknowledge that, but you sort of like get um, things in there. Or, or people feel like they can trust you with things mm. um, that they, they they wouldn't necessarily put in, like, institutions. And also spaces like this are normally, like, if when we talk about archives, when you talk about exhibitions, are normally uh, run in sort of inaccessible... Pl- like, when I talk about accessibility, it's like, well, what suburb is it in? It's in the city. Um, who gets to access it? Mm. Like, where is it located? Um, what can you... Because with the spaces I develop it's or create, it's more like, come in, you can spend as long as you want here, you can read, you can do other work. Um, and it's sort of like building on uh, the community. And also to... Because one of the goals is also this idea that we want more than one archive. Like, I'm just one archive, but everyone should have their own archive. And it doesn't necessarily... Like, Palestine would hopefully be included, but it's also surrounded around your culture, your identity, your family history. And so that if we create these small archives everywhere, they're very difficult to destroy. Yeah. And I think that's, like, the, the, the core of resistance, this idea that, like, right now the genocide is trying to to destroy Palestinian people, culture, history. And if there's pockets of these all around the world, then they, it never really dies. Yeah, I think that's a really beautiful way to put it, that, yeah, you can start with your own circles, your own communities, your own home, and think about, like, what is meaningful to you. And if it is everywhere, then, yeah, as you said, it's harder to destroy and you know, with the destruction of, you know, libraries and universities and archiving as resistance in the diaspora, I think is really special and important. And I think you've, you know, highlighted highlighted that really well. I was also wondering when you're, yeah, when you're selecting pieces to like be in the archive or someone says, can I put this in here? Like, how are you um, 
yeah, thinking about like, how does this belong with other books or yeah, what is your process to kind of display them or yeah, um, select them? So um, basically, I, I feel like some people are really good at like becoming very niche at what they include. I am a maximalist. I like to include everything. <laughs> so it's just like if something cool comes along, I will include it. But I think there's more like a logistics part of it that makes uh, what I choose uh, or what I like include. For example, if someone gives me a really – because there's like been some selbs, which is like a, a Palestinian uh, dress, like traditional dress. And to me, it's just like can I hold that responsibility – do I want to be in charge of this sort of thing? Yeah. So it's just like um, what I include is based on like, can I actually look after it? How many people are going to be touching this? Mm. Um, and also like I have uh, what I tr- generally trying to do with my practice or one of the like key rules I have is like do no harm. So I think about... Uh, Basically, I let most things in unless I think they cause harm. And there has been a few books because, um, for example, Lebanese and Palestinian history, uh, I mean, they're neighbours, so they would have a pretty interesting, I'm going to say interesting history, right? And so some of the books, um, their perspectives, I I feel like I still want to include it because you don't want to um, be oblivious to things that happen or you don't want to, like... uh, uh, not paint an accurate role of history mm. or, the, or as accurate as you can be, but potentially having a, I don't, maybe not trigger warning, but just a, a heads up before um, someone reads a book. Mm. I still haven't figured that out, but it, and I guess that's the process. But generally speaking, as long as it's not doing any harm and I can look after it in a way that I feel... I'm being responsible for it, it gets let in. Yeah, I think it's really, I think, yeah, you've highlighted how archiving is meaningful for yourself, the community, and also like what it represents. And I really liked how you said like, can I look after this? Can I think about the responsibility of what this means and how can I take care of it and also put it in display in the community and have that be acknowledged too? And it's very different from like, yeah, having a collector's shelf or like a collector's show it is thinking about like how does this benefit and show the story and even yeah it sounds like even when there are maybe like differing viewpoints um thinking about like there's the integrity of the voice and like where does that fit in and i yeah i i can see that navigating those challenges would be yeah really can be really difficult but it sounds like you take yeah a lot of care and and thought into doing that. So uh, yeah, I think that's really appreciated. And just lastly, uh, where to from here, and how can people support the great book return? I know that uh, the archiving, the uh, the pop up or the space has or the residency has ended. But yeah, what can we do to support? So I honestly have uh, been getting so much support, and I think that's what makes this much easier and in terms of like um, taking responsibility and thinking about that people are also trusting me with their things so I feel like Mm -hmm. it's like this reciprocal relationship and I've also had um, uh, a few books donated by 
some some local bookstores. And so uh, right now I'm trying to set up like a, a temporary third volume at Schoolhouse Studios um, because my sister does embroidery at Schoolhouse Studios and you basically bring a piece of clothing in and she will um, embroider um, something about Palestine on it, whether that's like free Palestine in Arabic. And so um, it's right outside her studio. So while people get things embroidered, um, they can have a look at the archive. And also it allows it to always be accessible because I think about, well, these books have been donated because there's there's obviously things from my collection, things from other people's collections that gets returned. And so the archive is constantly changing and evolving. But also I never want to be the only one that has access to these resources. So it's sort of like keeping it alive in whatever space um, I have access to. Um, and yet, and trying to figure it out from there. So right now, um, Schoolhouse is, uh, it's going to be its new temporary home, basically. Yeah, I think that's so special. And I think, yeah, the embroidery is so lovely. And yeah, pairing them two together is such a sweet way to like spend the day and engage in the culture and yeah, really learn and I think, yeah, it's really beautiful that I can like really picture it when you're talking, like people are coming in, they're returning books, but also that like this archive is like living and breathing as an organism and it expands and shrinks and everybody can come in and, and just hang out there and really learn. Um, yeah, I think you've painted like such a beautiful picture today of what this means, the kind of care that you put into it and yeah, what it, how archiving can be resistance. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Anna. I really hope that you have a lovely day. And for our listeners, we'll like have more information in the show notes. But yeah, thank you so much, Anna. Thank you. Bye. Bye. And that was Anna Amina, who is an educator, curator and writer based in Nam, who spoke about the latest installment of the Palestinian archive, The Great Book Return, that ran from the 20th of Jan to the 10th of Feb in Brunswick, West and highlights the importance of archiving as resistance amongst stolen and destroyed books, artworks and artifacts. From Melbourne to Mildura, the Victorian Mosque Open Day is back. On Sunday the 25th of February, mosques across Victoria will open their doors to all Victorians interested in exploring and celebrating the diverse cultural and religious tapestry that defines our state. Like so many others, the Victorian Muslim community is deeply hurting because of the war on Gaza. This year, we will be acknowledging our brothers and sisters by incorporating a Palestinian theme into the broader purpose of mutual respect, understanding and inclusiveness. Attendees can anticipate a range of engaging experiences, including community discussions, henna art, jumping castles, sausage sizzles, and more. Find your local mosque at www.icv.org.au forward slash VMOD. The Islamic Council of Victoria is a 3CR supporter. And we are back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. 
And we are now joined by Wes Papwin, diplomat, activist, and lecturer at the Australian National University, Ronnie Kearney, to discuss the outcome of Indonesia's recent elections with former Defence Minister Prabowo Subianto declaring victory last Wednesday. Prabowo's election has raised significant concern amongst rights advocates who point to allegations of serious human rights abuses overseen by the incoming president in both East Timor and Papua, as well as the potential for Prabowo's presidency to function as a conduit for incumbent Joko Widodo to continue exerting political influence once he exits office. Now, this is something that I think we really need to pay attention to as West Papuans uh, are our closest neighbors in their struggle for solidarity, uh, sorry, their struggle for self-determination. We have to make sure that we show our solidarity. So good morning, Ronnie. Good morning, Priya. Um, Thank you for joining us. It seems like you've become our resident West Papua correspondent. Oh, no, it's really, thank you. Thank you for the uh, opportunity and really, it's interesting times, particularly with this um, election last week. Yeah, of course. And so maybe we'll we'll jump into that. So last week, former Defense Minister Prabowo Subianto declared victory in the Indonesian presidential uh, election. And of course, this raised concerns for rights advocates who've pointed to serious multiple and unresolved allegations of human rights violations under his watch. And I understand the image that Prabowo presented during his election campaign was of a lovable grandpa, which is a far cry from how he's known to the people of West Papua and East Timor. Could you talk a little bit about how this image management um, sort of happened and how it appears to have captured the youth vote in Indonesia? Yeah, that image management, uh, it's pretty much kind of like a, a strategy that Prabowo really utilizes in the past five years um, after losing the first two elections, uh, 2014 and 2019. Uh, 2019 really marks like um, a change, particularly where... After the election, he appealed and then created a violent or a riot that really carried out throughout uh, Indonesia, uh, but mostly in Jakarta. And that kind of really allows Jokowi to bring Prabowo back into the government and given him that defense ministry portfolio. Now, that image of being that lovable grandpa it's kind of like a long time in the making to really uh, uh, target the youth uh, voters or the new first-time voters. And it kind of like first installed key security uh, generals, mostly generals, in key portfolios in ministry who then influenced Jokowi to shift his allegiance from the from our party, uh, which is under Megawati Sukarno Putri, uh, PDIP, and established a new one and gave birth to the the son, Gibran, to run under the new party. Mm. And that's kind of like really happened in mid to late last year, where uh, it's all within the family connection and uh the uncle of Gibran, who happens to be the chief judge of the the, the, uh, the Supreme Court, they found that he found a loophole and allowed some changes within that constitution, which gives Gibran to run 
as a vice president with Prabowo. Yeah. So this somewhat appeals to many of the youths, particularly with Jokowi's uh, continuation, so the narrative of continuing Jokowi's work, and also a youth, a new uh, young uh, uh, running running candidate. So that certainly appeals to the youth, and that image itself sells pretty good uh, when he uses the social media to attract that support. Yeah, he's out here doing TikTok dances and like it the the way that he uh has constructed this self-image which as you said is a long time in the making um really serves to gloss over those very serious concerns which we're going to talk about soon but I just wanted to touch on something that you mentioned yeah in terms of the electoral process Prabowo's running mate and vice president now is the outgoing president Joko Widodo's eldest son uh Gibran Rakabuming Raka so Democracy activists uh, in Indonesia raised concerns during Prabowo's campaign about the the idea of a tacit endorsement by the sitting president and, as you mentioned, the creation of this new party and a potential avenue to retain political influence post-presidency. Um, I was wondering if you wanted to make any more comments on what, uh, you know, what the sort of continuity that Prabowo has pretty much promised uh, from Joko Widodo's uh, presidency uh, might look like. Yeah, certainly Joko uh, in this scenario, Joko is the kingmaker. Um, and the narrative that Prabowo is using is the continuation, which pretty much the developmentalism, the idea of infrastructure development, foreign investment, stronger defense cooperation. And that's pretty much kind of like his narrative in <clears throat> calling for the other two uh, contenders <clears throat> to unite and continue the, the amazing work. But at the same time, um, as we see in the lead-up to the election, particularly when the debate, um, when asked around uh, what are the key areas of improvement, and human rights was one of the big uh, questions that was asked, um, Jokowi, uh, Jokowi again, sorry, Prabowo made it clear about his um, intention um, when it comes to human rights. And, mm. and certainly... Um, those uh, tacit uh, campaign that he's been running, particularly when the changes, like finding the loophole within the Constitution and really adding on to increasing the age of current uh, running candidates mm. from the 40, lowering it down to 35. And, and that is a big Kind of like, yeah, many of the judges, the lawyers, um, really uh, now questioning, uh, you know, the Constitution, particularly. It's kind of like a joke now. Yeah. Um, since after how Pogbo and Jokowi really um, manipulated and for the son Gibran to really run under this now. And we can clearly see... Um, particularly when in the days lead up to the voting um, throughout in Indonesia itself, they see um, activists particularly release, uh, and filmmakers, sorry, they release this film documentary called Dirty Vote, and they really investigated or dive into really exposing that thing that um, how Probovo manipulated or used key office generals 
and to influence Jokowi and then to even use the family within the uh, law to twist that law or again or constitution to fit their agenda. And so this is now has become now an appeal by the other parties, uh, contenders, to review um, this process again. Mm. Yeah, it's it's really concerning. And I mean, uh, also potentially worth mentioning here that this is the first time that Prabowo will have held elected office. So the the circumstances under which he has, uh, you know, been elected into power are, you know, have have as you said, raised a lot of questions about uh, democratic process and proceduralism in Indonesia. Um, now, I wanted to turn to uh, focus on the specific rights violations that Prabowo is accused of, given their extent and severity, and the fact that he's never actually faced trial. So uh, it's interesting. There are sort of echoes in this dynastic approach to Jokowi's con- continuation through Gibran and um, you know Prabowo's own uh, coming up under General Suharto and, um, you know, under that dictatorship, also having this, you know, relationship, uh, you know, marrying into Suharto's family, uh, because he was the uh, commander of the Indonesian Special Forces under dictator Suharto. So can you tell us about some of the allegations against Prabowo in relation to both East Timor and Papua and how he's managed to evade accountability? Yeah, he certainly has evaded accountability, uh, particularly uh, when in 98, 99, he was discharged from his role as the commander of the Copasos. Um, and knowing that the massacres, the invasions, the uh, cases of human rights abuses, particularly in the case of his Timor, where he was the commander, um, and escaped to Jordan for five years, um, seeking refuge there, um, and he was on uh, a list um, that forced uh, Australia, U.S. not to enter until it was 2014. Um, but when he returned after the five years in Jordan and came back, um, families are wealthy, so he utilizes his all kind of like, yeah, connection with the generals and came back as like, yep, nothing has happened. Um, those massacres, the invasions, those human rights abuse cases is and nothing, and he contested in the 2014 and 2019 election, and it seems like the the people immune to it, the older generations immune to like, oh, there has no accountability, there's no a process to hold him accountable. Mm. So it's kind of like the system within Indonesia cannot afford to hold him accountable, and even within the world leaders as well, uh, there has not been that push to hold him accountable. So he's kind of like that figure already establishing himself, like, okay, that case is gone, it's in back in the past. But certainly, what his new uh, role as a president, those, the past will haunt him now. Um, and it certainly is a setback for human rights in Indonesia. And there is that a lot of concerns now going back again, that given of his past history, um, and he's someone that is, quick to uh, uh, emotionally angry if questions are asked to address this past. And so this will be very interesting to see, particularly that um, the human rights cases, and this was evident when he mentioned about the human rights 
uh, of Papua, uh, like situation in West Papua, mm. in that debate with the two other presidents, our candidate, um, he responded immediately that um, the separatist movement in West Papua is is pretty much uh, a terrorist movement as well. And he literally mentioned four or five times the word terrorism, um, terrorism um, in the West Papua independence movement. And it needs to immediately shut down. Um, and it needs to be security enforcement to really maintain that. So that in his campaign was pretty much he emphasizing that, whereas the two other presidential candidates, one mentioned more about dialogue and the other uh, 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 person mentioned more about listening and bringing different parties to the table to discuss uh, ways that, uh, you know, everyone could be had and then resolve the current um, situation in West Papua. Mm. So that really demonstrated in terms of his leadership now and what that means to uh, different countries, and particularly here in Australia, given that when he holds the defense ministry portfolio um, with uh, Richard Miles, who visited Indonesia twice last year, and they have strengthened the defense cooperation, which Prabowo himself has exerted that there needs to be more training in infantry between two countries and to for Indonesia to access uh, the training bases here in Australia, in Darwin and in Victoria and other places. And so that has already been in place, and they are already now increasing the defence cooperation. So um, in terms of Australia's role, particularly now, um, Angus Campbell just visited uh, Indonesia or Jakarta immediately straight after in the last couple of days. We've seen him sitting with Prabowo, shaking hands and showing that uh, commitment to continue that uh, relationship on bilateral. But what is what is going to be interesting for us to follow through is based on the strengthening that defense. And Australia is also aware of uh, the other regional geopolitics at play. And so Indonesia is a strategic partner. Mm. And so that is something that um, Australia will more focus, particularly the government will focus more on the geopolitics over the rights of um, people, particularly uh, human rights situation in West Papua, or even uh, minority groups mm. around Indonesia, and mostly the um, activists and uh, human rights defenders. Yeah. And I mean, you, you spoke about the sort of uh, difference in responses from the three candidates when it came to questions about human rights. And I also wanted to add on, you know, tying back to that discussion of a continuation of Jokowi's developmentalist agenda, which, um, you know, part of that has looked like redrawing of provincial boundaries um, and the, an influx, an inclu uh, increasing influx of uh, Indonesian settlers into West Papuan territory. And so I'm wondering, you know, with with all of these uh, issues in mind, what concerns does this raise for the ongoing struggle for West Papuan self-determination and independence? The concern is West Papua is going to get more bloodier, like pretty much the on the 15th of Feb, straight the next day we in West Papua, there was in, uh, drops of 
at least another four or five hundred uh, military, particularly on the border, but they're sending them straight into Timika, the Central Highlands area. And this wasn't even making it in the news. But images of those militaries have landed and really scared the locals there. And so this is what we're going to see, increased military presence and using the idea of that developmentalist um, approach. So West Papua is really going to be shut down pretty much into the outside world, particularly when it comes to um, uh, rights to self-determination. And, yeah, it's really uh, a dull kind of like moment under this new uh, proposed leadership um, in the next five years. Mm. Yeah, and this is definitely something that, you know, as we're uh, broadcasting from unceded cool nations lands here, we need to... um, be really attentive to, uh, you know, calls for solidarity from West Papuans, again, as our closest kind of neighbors uh, who are fighting for self-determination. It is something that Australians have a clear responsibility and complicity in, as well as, Ronnie, you've mentioned uh, these close relationships between the Australian Armed Forces and the Indonesian Armed Forces, this sharing of training expertise, of weapons manufacturing, of military hardware. Um, So I just wanted to thank you again for, you know, clarifying um, the situation for our listeners. And uh, is there anything else you wanted to say before we wrap up? Yeah, the final um, comment here is just um, the, the outcome of this um, uh, election has also united a lot of the uh, uh, human uh, like uh, activists, Indonesian West Papua. So in the coming months, um, here uh, there will be some of the West Papua Indonesian activists, filmmakers. We are planning for them to come and really talk about the situation in West Papua. So that's that's coming up particularly in, later in the year, in April. Um, so just, yeah, happy to follow up on that, um, which is an interesting development of this unity within um, Indonesia and West Papua and activists. Yeah, and we'd love to have you and, and others back on to discuss this and, and keep um, keep up to date with the situation as it develops and the resistance as it develops as well. So thank you very much, Ronnie. Likewise, thank you for having me in the program. And that was Ronnie Karani, who's a West Papuan diplomat, activist and lecturer at the Australian National University, who joined us to discuss the outcome of Indonesia's recent elections with former Defence Minister Prabowo Subianto declaring victory last Wednesday. And as we discussed, Prabowo's election has raised significant concern among rights advocates who point to allegations of serious human rights abuses overseen by the incoming president in both East Timor and West Papua, as well as the potential for Prabowo's presidency to function as a conduit for incumbent Jokowi to continue exerting political influence once he exits office. You are listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua.
We're back on Thursday morning breakfast and it is 8.07 in the morning. And we just wanted to raise some important news around, uh, yeah, I just, I guess around coronial inquests, around the importance of black lives. So um, for any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, um, you know, the content that we're going to be discussing relates to coronial inquests, relates to suicide. So if you need to speak to anyone for mob only, please contact 13YARN. That's 139276. Um, and for everyone else, you can contact Lifeline on 131114. Um, so first of all, uh, I wanted to draw attention to the tragic death in St. Vincent's Hospital of um, proud young Aboriginal woman, Michaeli Watts-Owens. She's 24 years old. Um, she went to St. Vincent's Hospital seeking help uh, last Thursday for her for her mental health and ended up dying in St. Vincent's uh, due to a lack of adequate supervision. And um, her family are calling for justice. Um, her friends have started a campaign, um, you know, a fundraiser to bring McKaylee home. Um, I also, you know, want to mention that, you know, throughout this campaign, we've we've seen such an outpouring of support for her family and for her friends. And it just shows how many lives um, McKaylee has touched, including um, my own in, in a small way. I did have the privilege of, of teaching her for just one semester. And she's a brilliant, brilliant young person. Um, she's studying law at the University of Melbourne now. And um, yeah, we just want to send our you know, our heartfelt condolences to the family and support in the fight for justice for McKaylee. And we'll have a link to the fundraiser to help bring McKaylee home in our um, in our show notes today. So please do give generously if you can. It's going to be a long battle ahead um, to, to fight for justice. And, you know, as I guess I guess the only the only thing I can say is McKaylee should still be here with us now. Yeah, it's a incredibly devastating loss and it sh- it shows you know as um friends and community that you know we can speak about mental health and that there is support available but also how how tragic it is that they she went in to get help and you know so often with black fellows in like these supervised settings get get left behind they don't get the care that they needed and the system needs an uphaul. But, um, you know, when we're thinking about this, I also, you know, send so much love to the family and community and definitely the GoFundMe as well. Um, but looking at the links of, you know, this situation of people, blackfellas particularly in supervised settings, there is Josh Kerr's final... Uh, coronal inquest today which is at the coroner's court in south bank it's really important that we show up today in person when we can um yeah and it is just appalling to recognize that saint vincent's hospital are before have been before the coroner um because of their complicity in josh kerr's death and while this coronial inquest happens, McKaylee has died on their watch. Yes. And 
you know, attending the coronial inquest and seeing these witnesses, um, nobody wants to take responsibility. And it's so disheartening that it is their duty of care to look after people and they routinely routinely fail yeah and today especially is the last day of the coronial inquest and making sure that you come out and support um today will be a difficult day for the Kerr family and you know you can also watch on the live stream which is always available on the Darjoa Foundation Twitter and Darjoa is D-H-A-D-J-O-W-A and you can attend in person on the live stream but you can also donate to the Darjoa Foundation. They do incredible in very necessary work to make sure that um, when yeah, when black deaths in custody happen, that they are looked after and cared for and can be supported through this really often quite violent and difficult, challenging process. Mm. So it's a pay the rent, make sure that you support, um, yeah, support, yeah. support it. And um, just want to let people know that there is a new group called Blackfella Alt to Sue or um, uh, Alternatives to Suicide uh, that has started up and you can follow them for information for mob only to engage with alternatives to suicide in a safe space. And that is Blackfella Alt to Sue, A-L-T Uh, the number two and then S you will have that information in our show notes and finally just want to let listeners know that today the coronial inquest into the death in custody the killing of Kumanjai Walker by uh, Northern Territory Police Constable Zachary Rolf resumes today and you can head to at justice for Walker on Instagram for updates about that and continue to support the family that way and um we will head to another CSA and come back to you with our final interview. Yeah, I just wanted to say, you know, I know that what we have spoken about is quite, um, can be really challenging to listen to or sometimes distressing. And even if, you know, negative feelings or difficult feelings come up and you're not sure if you can talk to anybody, uh, there is help and support out there for you. Um, Even if it's just like a trusted friend. So, yeah, just remember that, like, however you're feeling, there there is there are people in your corner that can can support you, and you don't have to yeah deal with those feelings alone. Yeah, please always reach out if you need support, and we will have all of the information for how you can do that in our show notes. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on three CR eight five five AM. Have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long COVID as a keyword. A 3CR supporter. 
And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM for our final interview for today. And we are speaking with community lawyer and scholar uh, Dr. Tamar Hopkins about training criminal defense lawyers to identify and respond to racial poli- uh, profiling rather, and other forms of police misconduct in Victoria. Now, Tamar's PhD thesis, which won the Australian Legal Research Awards PhD Award in 2023, examined the meaning of racial profiling and its application in the Australian context in the absence of a formal system of identification and police accountability for victims of police misconduct. Tamar, who has been working, researching and writing on police power since 2005, will be running the well-regarded Stop, Question and Search Racial Profiling Training for Defence Lawyers in Victoria training again on Tuesday, the 12th of March. And we'll have more information in our show notes. But for now, good morning, Tamar. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you so much for making the time. Um, I thought we could, yeah, start by hearing about your doctoral research on racial profiling. So given that Australian law doesn't yet have a standard definition for racial profiling, how did you go about examining its manifestation in police interactions in that research? Yeah, so there is, it does fit under Section 9 of the Race Discrimination Act. So racial profiling claims in the past have used... Um, the the Federal Race Discrimination Act as the kind of legal avenue in which to run um, racial profiling arguments. But there is no legal definition in um, in case law yet in Australia that's kind of been generated about what it means. In 2015, Victoria Police introduced Australia's first policy definition of racial profiling, um, but it yet it still yet hasn't been picked up by the courts. And so... Um, in order to understand what racial profiling means and how to um, how to actually prove it in court, I looked at jurisdictions overseas, and and the the jurisdiction that does this the best is Canada. And um, there's a particular case there, Aaron Brown, that has um, got a really nice definition of racial profiling, and I'll just read it out here. Um, racial profiling occurs when race or racialized stereotypes about offending or dangerousness are used consciously or unconsciously to any degree in suspect selection or suspect treatment. This is a really useful definition because it um, picks up issues of, you know, any degree, whether race is used to any degree, it it comes under this this, uh, understanding. And it also picks up when people are selected for law enforcement interest, so on the streets, you know, in their cars, and also once they have been... um, they had been detained, the treatment that they receive. Um, so it's, it's a really helpful, useful definition, and, and it actually does fit neatly within Section 9 of the Race Discrimination Act in Australia. Mm. Yeah, and I think, you know, bringing this, uh, you know, bringing this international um, definition back into the Australian legal context is is so crucial considering, you know, we... This is a settler colonial context. Um, there is extreme uh, racialized policing that you know was based in the founding, uh, the founding of mm. you know this colony, um, but also persists into the present day. And yeah. um, I understand that you know this work and your longstanding work in the community legal center um, has informed the stop, question, and search racial profiling training for defense lawyers in Victoria, which is going to be running again uh, in March. So, can you tell us? about what the training entails, who it's for, and how it puts those research findings into practice? Yeah, sure. 
So what I did um, in my PhD was a couple of things. One was to do a survey looking at um, stop and search um, experiences in Victoria to provide data that could be used by lawyers in their arguments in, um, in making racial profiling claims. But the second thing I did was to go and have a look at the um, case law in Australia and um, there were the, the cases were there were so many cases that involved stop and question and search matters that involved racialized people where the issue of race was not raised by anyone in the court and yet it was this glaring issue that had not been de- dealt with mm. and so what was kind of really extraordinary is that we that the case law was showing these inherent these incredible patterns of racialized policing but this was just not being dealt with at all by the courts and so it, what I wanted to do was to actually start addressing the elephant in the room and get lawyers to start raising race in the, in the cases that they're seeing when their clients ask them to. And, and so this is really about how can, we, how can we give lawyers the tools that they need to start presenting their, um, the, the arguments that their clients want them to make. And I was really drawing as well on my own experience in the Carver case um, of... Um, having having my counsel question police in the magistrate's court um, about whether race impacted the um, the decision that the police uh, used to stop that vehicle and having um, the the question about race objected to by the prosecutor and sustained by the magistrate and um, our counsel continuing on with questions which were successful at the magistrate's court but which did not include the issue of race. Mm. Um, and so this issue was, this case was then uh, taken on appeal to the Supreme Court and because we hadn't put the issue of race, we, we'd been deterred from putting the issue of race to the, the police um, prosecutor at the, at the police informant at the first instance, we weren't able to raise it then on appeal and it was such a critical issue for the case. So really, it's about trying to package my understandings of what makes it hard for criminal lawyers to raise these issues and how can they do it better than I ever did? How can they actually get it right this time and start actually making the arguments that need to happen to make the central issues that that people experience actually be talked about in court? Um, So, yeah, just drawing on those Canadian experiences and Canadian case law is now replete with arguments. There's so many cases about racial profiling and it didn't happen overnight. These these cases, they they were a long time in the making. People were presenting racial profiling arguments again and again and again before finally the court started registering, hey, there's Mm. an issue here. So I'm expecting it to take a really long time for courts in Australia um, where there has been such a complete um, denial about about the impacts of racism to start actually cottoning onto this issue. Yeah. But this is a starting um, starting process. Yeah, absolutely. And as we've seen in the in the case of uh, you know coronial inquests such as into the the death in custody of Auntie Tanya Day and of Veronica yeah. Nelson uh, in Victoria, the question about racial discrimination and racial profiling. Um, has been brought by the the Council for the Families. Um, But obviously, this needs to be built in to the 
earliest possible stages um, of, of legal intervention um, because bringing it in the case of a, a coronial inquest, you know, is only is only sort of a retroactive action that, that comes in, in the call for some measure of justice for families after somebody has already died in a police interaction. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So given that you've conducted this training for many barristers and solicitors engaged in criminal defence work in Victoria already, have you had the opportunity to identify any shifts in the legal profession in Victoria's approach to racial injustice since you first started doing the training? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. People are um, starting to bring it up. So that's really exciting. There's been two cases where people have raised the issue directly um, of racial profiling in their cases that I'm aware of, and there may be more. Um, I know that So the, the training that I'm doing is not just about racial profiling, but also um, looks at a whole range of various aspects of unlawful policing and, and trying to identify those issues so that people can comfortably raise those issues in court. One of the problems with Victorian, you know, police powers law is that it's it's scattered across various pieces of legislation. And then in addition to that, there's also a really critical case law that um, kind of explains and, and unpicks those issues. We also have the Charter of Human Rights and we have Victoria Police policy. And a lot of lawyers just don't don't simply have that material at their fingertips mm. to, to be able to kind of understand how it works. So, And there is no textbook. Police powers is one of the least taught. I mean, it's beginning to happen. There are beginning to be courses on police powers in um, New South Wales, but it's it's one of the, the least taught areas. People will do have to do a criminal law section when they're becoming a lawyer, but that rarely goes into the, the fine details of police powers. Mm. So this is something that lawyers don't automatically have access to, this information, and so, so it's about providing them with the tools that they need. So I am also beginning to see people being much more um, robust in their sort of defence arguments before their clients. So that's that's exciting. But the other thing that has just happened, which is really significant, which has held back Victoria for a long time, is that legal aid for a long time had not provided grants of aid um, unless a person risks a jail term. Um, and so they're just about to introduce a change in their guideline on the 1st of April, which will allow lawyers who are picking up cases that involve police misconduct to apply for a grant of aid to take those matters to hearing. So that's a really significant change which hopefully will bring uh, will allow Victorian lawyers to make these arguments and actually take matters um, to full hearing in a way that they haven't before. So I think there are some kind of real shifts that mean that there are possibilities now that have not been available to Victorian lawyers. Mm -hmm. So um, we will see these the the issue of racial injustice requires a multi-pronged approach. Yeah. This is only one of the very large number of strategies that we all need to engage in. Um, but it's certainly, you know, it's, it's something that could could have an impact if, if people start engaging with it. The next yeah. thing is for magistrates and judges to start actually getting on board too. So we will see. Of course. Well, I mean, it is it is a structural uh, injustice and, you know, requires a multi-pronged approach, as you've mentioned. And I guess my, my challenge for you in the last minute or so of wrapping up is to build on that, to just ask about the, t the theory of change that underpins the yeah. training. So what you hope to achieve by making this intervention against systemic racial injustice at the level of criminal legal practice. 
Yeah, so it's really, and you, you've all um, highlighted it earlier, spot on about the point of at this stage, racism has really only been raised at the coronial inquest stage, um, but racism is a daily um, issue that people encounter, encounter, you know, every day. It's a practice that is kind of the, the casual racism that that appears as an everyday matter for, for people, and so really, it's about starting to. Um, Starting to give give lawyers the skill to to um, to identify when this is happening, and to make arguments in court in order to. So the theory of change really is about if we can start exposing this issue, talking about it, making it something that is raised in court, then it will raise awareness mm. um, across the community about this about this issue, and and can could you know trigger the kind of whole raft of changes that need to happen, the structural changes that need to happen towards addressing racism. So it's just really, you know, that awareness is the key thing. Raising awareness is so essential and in, in as many forums as we can. So yeah. That's, that's and really, about. yeah, about breaking the silence on racial violence um, in, in these settings. Absolutely, yeah. Um, Look, Tamar, thank you so much for making the time. Sorry to rush you on that last one, but really appreciate you talking through this. And we will have the information in our show notes about the training session for uh, any anyone who's involved in criminal defense um, in Victoria who wants to sign up. Great. Thank you so much. And that was community lawyer and scholar Dr. Tamar Hopkins, who spoke about training criminal defense lawyers to identify and respond to racial profiling and other forms of police misconduct in Victoria. That's about all we have time for on today's show. So a very quick wrap up of what we talked about first on uh, first up. Yes, first up, it was Yena Pasaran from Dr. Jason about the Claremont Institute and eugenics, and then Anna Amina on archiving about the great book return. And then after that, we were joined by Ronnie Kearney about, uh, to, to discuss the outcome of Indonesia's recent elections uh, with the success of former Defence Minister Prabowo Subianto. And as I just said, finally, we uh, heard from community lawyer and scholar Dr. Tamar Hopkins. Um, that's all we've got on for today. Please make sure that you can, you head to the coroner's court at South Bank if you can for the final day of Joshua Kerr's coronial inquest today. Uh, go support Auntie Donis and the family. It's, it's absolutely vital. But otherwise, we will catch you next week on Thursday Breakfast. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.